Hello, hello out there in podcast listening land. You're listening to the Kill Your Gods podcast. I am your host, Jesse Dram, where every week we get into culture at large and art and take take the piss out of it a little bit. Um, we're not really doing that much this month. We are in another book club. This show started as I Hate Infinite Jest, and now, after... Eh, we have 34 episodes of that if you want to go back and check it out. But now we're getting into some other stuff. Uh, I have never read Thomas Pinchon before, so I asked a few friends who, some some were newbies like me, other ones were big-time fans, if they would come and read along with me. So here we are, part two, chapter three, The Crying of Lot 49. My guest this week is Matt Markwood. You can find him on Twitter as... Uh, Matthew Markwood spelled backwards. If it was Matthew spelled backwards and then Markwood spelled backwards. Hold on, let's try this. W-E-H-T-T-A-M-D-O-O-W-K-R-A-M. Matt, you did not make this easy for me, buddy. <laughs> Matt is a big Pinchon fan. He is the founder of the r slash Thomas Pinchon subreddit. So if you want to go check that out, so that's r slash Thomas Pinchon. He also runs uh, Bad Reads, another subreddit, which is the best of the worst of goodreads.com. We got into detail, for example, when he gave me like, okay, well, what's a bad Goodreads thing? He says like, oh, you need to read this re horrible one-star review of the Diary of Anne Frank. And I was sold immediately because there are some idiots out there. But, you know what they say, it takes all kinds to fill the highways. Do people still say that? I think the highways are too full. We should take them down a little bit. So, yeah, be sure to go check them out. Um, gotta be honest, his uh, his audio was a little bit lacking. I, I cleaned it up best I could. We still had a great conversation, as far as I'm concerned. So... Because my mother-in-law uh, told me that my last intro was too long, I will now shut the fuck up. I got a show coming February 18th. If you go to cricketcomedy.com, that'll be at uh, Rack's Bar and Grill in Williamstown, New Jersey. If you guys want to come watch me do stand-up. Coming up the rest of this month, I know we have two more episodes of Crying A Lot 49 I'm very excited about. I'm going to be recording an episode on... Uh, the, the GameStop stock controversy, because I don't want to just talk about art. I want to... Guys, I'm a really complicated character. <laughs> yeah, I, I like talking about whatever's big. That's why I did the QAnon episode, and I find the GameStop thing happening right now so interesting that I wanted to get some friends on that are, like, knee-deep in it. So, you know, you know, hold those stocks, boys. Diamond hands. We got this. Hold, hold. In addition, we're going to be having at least one episode on Game of Thrones. Me and Perry have been recording. Uh, I have never watched Game of Thrones before, so on the side, I have been watching watching it for the first time, and we've just been recording a podcast as we go along, and we're just about to wrap up Season 2, so we'll be dropping that at a weird point. Again, you guys have any topics you want to talk about, drop me a line. You can find me at Jesse Dram at all the things at Mr. Jezgo on YouTube. I think I'm going to start up a YouTube series talking about books because not because I think I have anything great to say. I'll just be honest. I've seen a lot of them that are up there and they're very poor production quality. And uh, let's just say people who don't seem incredibly comfortable on camera before. I'm coming off unlikable this weekend. I know that. I'm okay with that. So. For this episode, Chapter 3, Crying of Lot 49, with Matt Markwood. 
if you could do me a favor, please share, like, subscribe, five stars. That helps us, apparently. Tell a friend. Pick, pick, send me a message at, at jessedram at gmail.com. Let me know what's the next book you want to hear. I told you last week I did the song Serenade by the Paranoids. This week I knocked out a quick version of a sea shanty sung by everybody's favorite little guy, the young Metzger, Baby Igor. See you guys next week. Don't you worry about it, fellas. You, all you need to get through this is just me, me dog, and me daddy. And I'll sub. Gets a ton and the Turk never once do he shirk. My daddy, my doggy, and me. Through the perilous years, like the three musketeers, we will stick just as close as can be. My daddy, my doggy, and me. Soon our subs periscope will aim for Constantinople as again we set hopeful to see. Once more to the breach for those boys on the beach. Just my Miss daddy, Miss Doggy, and me. Just my Miss daddy, Miss Doggy, and me. Yes, just Miss my daddy, Miss Doggy, and me. Okay, here we are. We are back again. Thomas Pinchon's The Crying of Lot 49, Part 2, Chapter 3. Joining me today from the Thomas Pinchon subreddit, Maddie Markwood. How are you doing today, my friend? Oh, I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing very good. Me and, uh, me and my fiance are planning to see a house to buy tomorrow. Today is the anniversary of her stepdad's death, so we're going to go up and have martinis with her mom. So, yeah. Good, good day overall. I'm excited to have you on. We've been trying to get you on since uh, the Infinite Jest days. Yeah, I wasn't. <laughs> I hadn't finished Infinite Jest. I don't think I even started when you asked me. And I was. Uh, I had been planning on reading it as my next book, but I just hadn't gotten there yet. And I was like, "Well, can you wait?" And you said something like, uh, "Well, geez, like <laughs> I'm not going to be recording by the time you uh, you get to it." So. I had to put it off, but I actually have read it now. Um, but I oh. did tell you, you know, I'd love to do this if we did a Thomas Pinchon one. Mm -hmm. So wait, you said you have read Infinite Jest? Yeah, I spent a whole month. I, I spent a whole month of December reading it. Um, I, I set like myself a really stringent goal. I was like, I don't want to be spending more than a month reading this. So I made like a schedule. I like outlined the book. Like this is in November, and I said I'm gonna. Read 32 pages a day of main text, not counting whatever footnote pages I have to read. And then, so I was able to read it from December 1st through December 30th. And it was difficult to try to stay on that schedule. I, I got three kids, I got a wife, and I work full time. So it was like uh, just squeezing in pages here and there, like, you know, when I was going to take a shit or. <laughs> hey, man, know, that's a, that's during my, my uh, daughter's bath time. Matt, some of the greatest words written in the history of mankind I have taken in and absorbed while a turd slid out of my asshole. There's no way around that. That's a great I, I mean, <laughs> it's literally like where I get most of my reading done. Yeah, that's why that's why hemorrhoids are the thinking man's disease. But <laughs> so what, what did exactly. you think? What did you think overall of Infinite Jest having uh, now read it? Well, it was like my second attempt at it. I think mm. summer 19, I, 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 uh, I tried it 
because I was like, you know what, I've read Gravity's Rainbow, I've read, you know, all Thomas Pinchon's big novels, I've read some other big ones too, like Ulysses, and I was like, I could do Infinite Jest, no problem, I can read anything, and I went in with that attitude, but I didn't go in with the commitment that you need to read Infinite Jest, so I got 120 pages in, and I was like, I'm not into this, I'm going to read it some other time, and I, after a while, I guess this past year, I decided, you know, hey, it's the pandemic. I need to read Infinite Jest finally. Mm. And then I ended up not doing it until December. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I found it really much better than I was anticipating. I, I know you have a, a much more uh, reserved or harsh opinion about it. but I, it I honestly feel me, like I, I backslide on it more and more every day. <laughs> I, I, it's definitely one that sticks in your mind after you're done reading it. I don't. I wouldn't say. I think I've said before on when I was uh, tweeting about it as I was reading it. I don't think this is, it's going to be one of my favorite novels of all time, or or David Foster Wallace is going to be one of my favorite authors of all time. But it's one that just sticks with you. You, you. you tend to think about it a lot after you've done you're done reading it. Like I'm still thinking about the characters in the book, you know, weeks later. And the, and the settings and like well, what was really going on there i know it's one i'm probably going to revisit someday mm-hmm. probably not for at least several years because yeah. it's it's, it's yeah. a big commitment but i did enjoy it overall i don't think it holds a candle to a lot of the, the authors he gets uh compared to like thomas Pinchon or don delillo or, or william gaddis but yeah, it, I, I, it's, I, a, it's a worthy I, novel yeah i mean it's again i feel like it would be it wouldn't be, I, I would personally wouldn't have so much beef with it if it wasn't so hyped up. But like, I've heard a lot the of people, hype is unreal. Yeah. And I've heard a lot of people compare him to Pinchon. And even just reading, and I, for all I know, Crying a Lot 49 might be like, you know, baby's first Pinchon. But uh, it's so night and day different. Like, honestly, I, I had such a, so over a period of a few uh, months, all of last year, pretty much all I read was Dostoevsky and David Foster Wallace. And so far this year, I read like uh, Be Here Now by Ram Das and like the complete dramatic works of Brendan Behan. And I just needed a fucking break. I was like sick of reading. And I pulled out an old Kurt Vonnegut and I, I blew through it in like two days. I completely forgot like, oh, I can just enjoy a story being told. I, and that's, that's what I love about Vonnegut. He was like my first... Uh, I think we talked about this before. He, he was my first uh, literary love. Like, he was the one that really pulled me into reading literature and, and realizing that it's, like, just a medium that can do so many different things that uh, other mediums can't. And, you know, I, I I think I was, like, 22. I was 21, and I started reading his books. And then I, I just, like, I couldn't stop. I, I read probably his entire, uh, you know, output probably by the time I was 22, 23. And, I just, I felt this huge hole missing in my, my life because I was like, well, geez, I can't, there's nothing else I can read, you know, that's going to be like this, that's going to hold a candle to this. And then I discovered Pinchon and, mm. you know, a lot of these other authors I'm reading now. And, but yeah, Vonnegut is just so readable. Like, it, I, I can always pull out a, a Vonnegut novel and just read it from you know, front to back in like a day or two, because it's just so, it pulls you in and you just can't stop reading. Yeah, great. Um, so 
we'll start diving in but uh before we do yeah just mention okay. what did you say well real quick where can we find you on social media or if you have anything to promote because i'm supposed to do that at the top of the podcast but i'm not very good at this so just oh, it's, pop it it's in it's fine. i don't i don't have any like really big personal projects that i'm promoting right now i do mm-hmm. some writing on the side but none of that is ready to show to the general public mm-hmm. um but i do i am involved in some online communities mainly on reddit um so I wrote a Thomas Pinchon uh, subreddit mm-hmm. called R Thomas Pinchon, and over there, it's it's you know a fairly small subreddit, very niche, about almost seven thousand uh, subscribers to it, which is huge compared to when I, I took it over. I took it over and it was like only like I want to say twenty two hundred people like involved in it, and it's just kind of blown up over the last few years since I took over, and. Um, what we, what we do over there is I, I, I really wanted to just, I, mean, I was an English major in college, but my job has absolutely nothing to do with that. And mm. I felt something kind of, you know, missing from the, the pleasure I got, you know, being actively involved in literature. So when I got involved with the Reddit, I was like, you know, I'm going to try to make this, uh, you know, a platform that I can use to communicate and just kind of spread the love of reading of difficult uh, novelists and just, you know, difficult books in general. So we started doing greeting groups. So the summer of 19, we did uh, V by Thomas Pinchon. And then winter, we did uh, The Crying of Walk 49. We just did uh, the Gravity's Rainbow one this past summer. We're doing Vineland right now. That ends, it started this past November and ends on 19 March. And like all of this is archived on it too, so people can revisit it if they want to ever get into the the difficult novels like that. They can you know go back into our archives and look at it and be able to follow along because at this point, like it's just it's I can't imagine what it was like reading Pinchon back in the '60s or the '70s or the '80s or even the early '90s when there was just no internet. You had to like literally go to the library and look some of this crazy you know references up. Now it's just never been easier to read Thomas Pinchon and really get what he's saying and, you know, understand the huge amount of references that, you know, he's dropping in almost every sentence. So, you know, we have that. We have the reading groups. We also, when uh, the pandemic started, a lot of people on the subreddit were, like, talking about how they were losing their jobs, you know, Mm. or, you know, just people just in general – suffering i'm gonna let my dog in just real quick <laughs> that's fine that that dog has amazing rhythm because it felt like it literally felt like in the background two three one two three uh. she has the most horrifying bark ever like it it literally pierces my soul every time <laughs> oh god um, I, I'm, I'm having that discussion now with my fiance because she wants to get a dog but it's like we live in the city so we can't get a dog that's too big but i will kill a yippy dog like i love dogs a yippy dog i will just stare at it and hate it for 18 years until it's gone <laughs> this this is literally the most i, I don't know she's a, a, a smallish dog she's an australian cattle dog but she is just the most terrifying force of nature I've ever encountered. She just, <laughs> you know, I think my wife did that on purpose because she's had this dog since before I was in the picture. Mm. And, you know, she would take her on walks and this dog was like her protector. Like it would, no one wanted to go anywhere near my wife if 
this dog was near her because that dog would literally look like she would eat you alive. Awesome. <laughs> Back to what I was saying. Um, so, yeah, a lot of people were just, uh, in general, you know, suffering and, and just having a, a bad time of it, you know, naturally during the pandemic. So I started this other project on this subreddit, and I called it Painting in the Time of Corona, you know, in, in reference to, what is it, Love in the Time of Cholera, Gabriel mm. uh, Garcia Marquez. And pretty much what we do is we, we kind of crowdfunded, not crowdfunded, crowdsourced a video project on where people would read chapters of Gravity's Rainbow. That was the first one we did. And they would send the videos to me and I would upload it to YouTube on a new account I made for the Thomas Pinchon subreddit. And we literally read all of Gravity's Rainbow over the summer, you know, in little chunks over that video um, series. And then we did Crying, yeah, we did Crying of Law 49. Now we're doing the, um, and then another thing we do on there is, uh, you know, when we do the, the reading groups, a lot of people, like, I would I'd reach out to them and say, hey, we're going to be doing this reading group. Are you interested in joining with us? You know, um, just people I know that might, you know, be interested in hopping in. And they'd say, well, I don't have a copy of the book or, you know, I'm too broke. I can't get it or I can't go to the library, you know, something like that. So I, I started giving the gift of Pinchon thing where I had volunteers from our subreddit literally sending in the mail or ordering online for people co- like spare copies or used copies or, or brand new copies of Vineland to people. So that way they could actually join in, you know, and mm. it, it was just kind of a way of, you know, letting people. Yeah. That, well. that, that, that's awesome. Just cause I really feel like as, as much fun as it is to go back and read something, I feel like nothing really depreciates in like actual, dollar value than a book you've already read because like even 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 if you want to read it again it's gonna be years there is nothing else that costs ten dollars maybe that you would just go i'm going to leave this on a shelf and drag it with me any home i might move to because i might need it for a month five years from now (laughs) and i think that's a beautiful thing it it it, it was uh one of my my prior moments i was just like why didn't i think of this before uh, the, only, the last thing uh, I'm involved with, um, really, is uh, I started this joke subreddit, a literary joke subreddit, um, okay. back in April, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. It was just kind of a weird idea I had, you know, random. I didn't think it was going to blow up at all, and it's actually bigger than the Thomas Pinchon subreddit now. It's like 10,500 subscribers or something like that. It's called Bad Read. Uh, in reference to Goodreads, have, have, you, have you ever been to that site? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So, like, th- I just noticed, like, there's a ton of really crazy, bad, or just awful reviews on Goodreads. And I was like, God, so there's got to be a website out there that collects these or curates them. And I, I, I looked for one, and I was just like, been out there. I wonder if there's a bad reads out there. And I, I looked it up, and no one was using that name. So I was like, okay, I'll make a little bad read subreddit. Do, 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 and all of a sudden it just kind of blew up and it, it's been like 10 months and all of a sudden we have 10,000 some odd subscribers so it pretty much is just people posting screenshots of uh, really bad reviews like there was one where uh, th- this one's my favorite it's, it'll always be my favorite it's, he calls the diary of Anne Frank like uh, oh boy. 
what did he call it? Oh God, now I'm I'm blanking. But he like said it was like uh, the saddest boxcar children I ever wrote. Sorry, red. Fuck. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's always reviews like that. This guy, he he thought it was like I I don't know why I'm blanking on this. Probably because I'm on the spot. But um, if you if you remember it at any point, just, just I'll just yell it out in the middle of this right. podcast. Okay, so uh, check him out on Twitter at Matty Markwood slash r uh, slash r slash Thomas Pinchon and slash r slash uh, batteries. There it is. Okay. Batteries. Nice. Yeah, I want to try and do. Uh, like I said, I, a lot of people wanted me to do Gravity's Rainbow after Infinite Jest, and I think I'm gonna do. I, I've been doing a thing where I'm like recording episodes of stuff on the back catalog. Like I'm going to be able to drop a bunch of game of thrones episodes all at once because me and my girl are watching it for the first time and just recording as we go but uh i'm really trying to come up with a format that i could tackle some of those bigger things i don't know we'll see anyway enough of my i don't know why i stopped to talk shop there for a second but Not let's get into this week's uh chapter three the crying of lot 49 typically i will put little like questions or Anything I have in here, like interview style, as it comes up, I really don't have much this week. So uh, anytime we have anything to add, let's just stop and talk about it. All right? Yeah. Sounds good. Uh, where we have last, last left Oedipa and Metzger, she has been seduced by Metzger. Or, you know what? First off, tell me this. Tell me if I'm right. I thought the very end of chapter two, where pretty much she asked Pierce, uh, she asked Metzger, what did Pierce tell you about me? And he said that you wouldn't be this easy. And she starts crying. So in, did Pierce try to get him to seduce her? Or I'm, I'm confused. And if it's going to give anything away, fuck it, give it away. The, the whole novel, I feel, it hints at, but it never specifically says. It, it, it just kind of gives, it plants the seed of the idea that Pierce is behind a lot of what is going on in the novel. Like, you're constantly questioning, is this a real conspiracy that Oedipa is picking up on? Or is it just some fucked up game that Pierce Verity, you know, set up for her in the event of his death? And you never really get that answer. Okay. Which, you know, spoiler alert, you never get that answer. But it's, it's always in the back of your mind. And, you know, sometimes you're going to lean more towards, this is Pierce's, you know, just fuckery. Or... Mm. No, this is actually something weird going on. You never really know. Okay, okay. Uh, things did not delay in turning curious. If one thing led to her metaphorical freedom... Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's some good lines in this. Uh, if one thing led to her metaphorical freedom from her tower and the Tristero system, that fling with Metzger was it. This would come to haunt her as she felt surrounded by revelation. Much of it through a stamp collection of pierces. She had once considered it competition for his attention. Now she was selling away her competition. She receives a letter from Mucho. Uh, so randomly, last episode with Seamus, he just drops like, oh yeah, Mucho has like a thing for young girls. And I thought it was just kind of hinted, but it's pretty straight up like, no, he's he's into jailbait and she's asked him, are you worried about getting caught? And he just totally drops his guard like, oh, absolutely. But uh, <laughs> that's, that's a good one too, yeah. I... <laughs> Uh, Metzger and Oedipa go to a bar called The Scope, populated by engineers from the nearby Yo-Yo Dine. The bar is known for live electronic music, which actually confused me, because, like, what is 19, what was electronic music in 1964? Is he talking, like... Oh, God. 
I have no idea. Like, and that that's something I question too. It's like, wow, that's that's really early for for electronic music. I because I, I feels like a lot of that didn't really come about until the late seventies. But again, I was born in eighty nine, so I don't. I'm not the expert on that. <laughs> You can find some weird proto stuff of any genre, like I, I don't oh, yeah. know. Uh, a young man named Mike Fallopian, great fucking name, Mike Fallopian slips into their booth and begins to tell them about the Peter Penguin Society. Penguin was a commander in the Confederate Navy who took his ships down from the Cape of Horn to surprise attack San Francisco, only to enter combat with Russia, who was there to prevent Britain or France from helping the Confederacy. He later resigned, upset by the Alliance of Abolitionists Union and Russia. He retired to California and made a lot of money speculating in California real estate, like Pierce. So, I don't know if any of that's true, or if I even really, like, grokked what happened there. He just, We're a Peter Penguin Society, and he's this guy. And then that just kind of stops. Uh, do you have any idea if that was a real guy? I don't believe it was. Um, and that's another common thread that you find in Pinchon novels is where you don't know where he's actually interlacing history, like real history mm-hmm. with just fictional takes, you know, or fictional in of history. I definitely, I just looked it up. It is, it is an invention for this book. So there's that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He, and, uh, it, it's just so it's so common in his books, especially in um, Against the Day and Mason and Dixon, where he's just like, okay, here's this real historical context and background, but I'm going to drop a little, you know, bit of fantasy in it too. Mm-hmm. I mean, having just read Bluebeard, uh, it's actually a little bit similar because it involves a lot of the actual people of the actual abstract expressionist art movement in New York in the 1960s. And then Vonnegut just invents some like side characters who were also there. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. It, it, I need to. Re- I think I told you this the other day, but we. I need to reread that. I. It, it was one of my favorite ones when I first read Hellfire's Output, but I just. Uh, I, that's one I just never reread. But it, it's. It's always difficult to tell with Pinchon, like, whereas like I think in uh, Vonnegut's novels when he does it. You could tell, like, this character didn't exist, right. you know, or, or that character didn't exist, or that seems unlikely. With Pinchon, there's just, the lines are so blurred, you can't really tell. Yeah. Um, a fat kid enters the bar, and everyone goes nuts. He is the Yo-Yo Dine postal system mailman. In the bathroom, Oedipus sees graffiti advertising, interested in sophisticated fun, you, hubby, girlfriends, the more the merrier. Get in touch with Kirby through Waste Only, P.O. Box 7391LA. Next to it, the symbol of a muted horn. She scribbles the hieroglyphic in a notebook. So again, I'm still not far enough in this novel to know exactly what's happening, but I know there's something about like rival postal systems, which uh, I, uh, sounds interesting, but I mean, hey, if you're... If, I feel like most forms of communication started out with orgy invitations, so it's on the right path. Slowly getting there. Yeah, I mean, like, I... My... <laughs> so I met my fiancé. I, I met my fiancé through a, through a rogue orgy. Actually, a rogue orgy uh, <laughs> communication system. I met her on OkCupid, so it's not that far off. You could That's certainly... I met my wife. <laughs> yeah? 
Yeah, I always tell people that I, I met her on Craigslist Casual Encounters when that existed. <laughs> <laughs> and, and people just look at me like, really? Uh, but no, we, we met on OkCupid. Okay, <laughs> yeah, say that's a, that's false adver- advertising. If you were looking for casual, and ended up you know hitched. I know. Yeah, you know <laughs> I I find that funny because I feel like so much of popular culture only focuses on like the Tinder aspect of it. Where I always felt like a lot of people I knew were getting together over OkCupid. Okay, I mean, I remember I actually did the math, and I think with the exception of like one girl. Every single person I had intimate relations with after the age of 23, I met online. Yeah, it, I feel like it's just uh, kind of a, uh, it's become a norm of our, uh, our generation. I'm assuming you're, you know, a millennial. Um, yeah, you, you said 89, I'm born 86. Okay, yeah, so it, it, I think it's just kind of become a staple, like, because, like, I think after the age of, you know, probably around 20, so probably around the same time you were 23, um, you know, a lot of the women and people I would meet would be online, like, it, and that was just me meeting friends, me meeting, uh, you know, girlfriends, lovers, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just kind of become the natural thing. So, like, I know, like, with my 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 sisters are late millennial or uh, late or no early millennial, late Gen X. And that's just not something they ever experienced. So they always thought it was weird that I'd be like, oh, yeah, I met this girl online and now I'm dating her. And they're like, whoa, mm-hmm. you know, how do you know you're not, you know, dating some dude in the basement? I'm like, well, because I met this person. <laughs> well, uh, I, I don't. That's part of the fun, sis. <laughs> you find yeah. these things out, find it, these it, things it, out on the you journey. You flip a coin and then, oh, you're an old bearded man. Okay, let, let's do this. <laughs> Like even if it was an old bearded man, I'd at least sit and talk with him for a little bit. You know, hey, thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Is... Tell me about, tell me about I met someone. Tell me about the depression, please. <laughs> that I had had a good conversation with, even if I wasn't like super impressed with the way they looked or whatever. If I had been having good conversations with them, that's the person I want to talk to, no matter what. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's not like I I know one guy, <laughs> one of my friends. He uh, I guess. He did one of those Tinder dates, and he he walked into the restaurant, saw you know this girl across the way, and instead of going to meet her, he just walked right out of the restaurant. Or, <laughs> and then he had another one where he oh. sat down with her, decided he didn't like her, said he was going to go to the bathroom, and walked out the back of the restaurant like okay. he's a kitchen. I have I I have two quick ones. One, okay. I I went on a date with this girl who uh, <laughs> she was really really like a downer. She was like, oh yeah, my mom just died. I'm like, oh that's that sucks. Cool. But like, I, but I, I'm always game. Like, hey, everyone I love is dead. I'll talk about this shit. At one point during the date, she says, uh, my new roommate got locked out of the apartment. I have to go let them in. I'll be right back. And we've already been hanging out for like two hours. We're like, oh, you just want to call it a date? Like, that's fine. She says, no, 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 I'll be right back. Proceeds to leave, continues texting me for an hour. Like, I don't know what's happening. And then just stops. Like, I gave her the out right away. Like, oh, we can do this another day. She's like, nah, let me keep you on the line for another fucking hour. Uh, the other that's, one. That's insane. <laughs> the other one, I went on a date with a very cute uh, homeless girl who, yeah, I found out that... Uh, she had one of those like government Obama phones, the low income Obama phones, and you can get dating apps on that. And our first date, I literally paid for her to get a load of laundry done because I am a romantic. 
And who boy, yeah, that didn't go very far, but it was fun. I got a story out of it. What, what, what else could I ask for? Online dating is just like a, mm -hmm. it's a plethora of, of great stories to tell your grandkids. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Meet hot singles today one. on the Waste System, P.O. Box 7431. <laughs> oh, I had one. Uh, it, this is the last one, I promise. It, it, she was, I met her at a bookstore. You know, we had been having a good conversation for about a week or two. And I was just like, I, I don't like to like be talking like that for more than a week or two. So I was like, okay, let's, let's go meet at the book. We'll get some coffee, whatever. And the entire time she was sniffing. And I was like, oh my God, what, what's, what's going on? Like, is, like, is she, you know, does she have a cold? Is she like addicted to cocaine? I'm not a drug user. So I'm, I'm just, I'm, and I was very young at this point. I was like, what is going on? And I was like, hey, are you, are you not feeling well? Like, are you sick? Like, what's going on? And she's just like, oh, uh, I, uh, I'm, I, uh, I'm addicted to uh, nose drops, or not nose drops, no, nasal spray. Like, what? She's like, yeah, I can't, I can't you know, uh, go very long without having it. I'm like, what? Like, it just blew my mind. It's like, of all things, nasal spray? So I actually, uh, I, I was pretty dependent on cough drops for a number of years. So. Really? Uh, you know what it was? It, it was very much an anxiety thing. I went through a period mm -hmm. where I was having chronic panic attacks. One of those main features of the panic attacks was feeling like I couldn't get air in. And I mm -hmm. felt with like cough drops, number one, it would distract me. And number two, you could like feel the air going. In. It's really dumb. It's really dumb, but I may or may not have cough drops available at all times, just in case. Not not addicted. I could, I could stop whenever I want, I'm sure. But Of course. Anyway. Let's stop talking about me and let's get back to the, let's stop talking to me. My back to the book. Uh, if anybody has a good halls hookup, I could really, uh, I could really use some halls right now. Anyway, back at the table, Mike Fallopian opens his letter. Uh, it's clearly some kind of code, only a few sentences. How are you? How's your book coming? See you at the scope. The Tristero is some type of chaos performance at a feel she is watching uncertain whether she's only viewing or waiting to be called into the cast. This will actually come up later in the episode with, uh, we found more about the Tristero and a play. Oedipa, Metzger, and a following car of the Paranoids and their girls go to Fangosa Lagoons, one of Pierce's final projects. They pull up to a boat dock where the Paranoids immediately go about stealing a boat. Oedipa notices Metzger stumbling around with his eyes closed and inquires. He is doing this so as to not witness any crimes, so he may possibly be able to represent the paranoids should they get arrested. Love a small little detail. This happens a few times in this chapter. I really love the paranoids. I, I picture them like, like these little crab people who are just kind of like, well, paranoids, parasites, who are just kind of like on the host body of Oedipa and Metzger as they go around, only, you know, mop top, uh, fake british bands i love that this is his idea of the beatles too because this is right around the time of beatlemania and this is just his take at the time of all that nonsense like yeah i, I could see ringo stealing a boat why not <laughs> yeah I, I kind of always pictured them as like uh i don't know a weird mix like visually not like uh actually mm -hmm. uh of like the beatles the ramones like with ramones haircuts mm -hmm. and like the gorillas, for whatever reason, like those cartoon gorillas that uh, that band. <laughs> yeah, it feel good, don't. But, yeah, but yeah, 
even though it's funny, they're not made. Uh, they're not made. What the fuck am I saying? They're not shown as like anthropomorphic or anything. They're just people. But just yeah. the, the way they interact with everything, I literally imagine them like a little cartoon dog just like slowly sneaking up in the background like oh, what's what's going on over here yeah, kind of like knuckle dragging like weird you know yes. animalistic behavior weird weird little goons following them around uh on a boat they meet metzger's previously mentioned lawyer slash actor acquaintance manny depresso who is hiding under a blue tarp uh remember that he had supposedly once played a character based on metzger on a tv show Two men in gray suits begin to chase them as they escape onto the boat Godzilla 2. The paranoids, as they steal the boat, sing a song, which is so short, I'm not going to make a uh, song around it, but I will put, hey, solid citizen, we just pinched your boat. There you go. I will be recording the Baby Igor song. I was hoping there were going to be more songs in this, because they have like three in the first two chapters. If you ever read any other Pinchon, you're going to have just uh, a plethora, I've said that already, of songs yeah. to, to to adapt. He is he loves adding weird little songs or poems or sonnets to his, uh, or, or dirty lyrics to his mm. uh, books. It's, it's a huge See, common thread throughout all his books. When I recorded and posted my version of the Paranoid song Serenade last week, I was actually astonished. I couldn't find anybody else who had done that. Have other people done that? Like tried making recordings out of the lyrics in the book? Oh God. Um, Cause you would, think, you would think in this world where everything under the sun is done and you can watch like a five-year-old on YouTube play the most complicated guitar solo you've ever seen. Somebody would have gotten around to that, but I, could, I couldn't find it. You know, there's this group, I believe they are on YouTube and they do record Pinchon songs. I cannot remember okay. the life of me what their handle is. I'll probably send it to you afterwards when I find it. Okay. Uh, but, but yeah, I know there is a group that is that does do Thomas Pinchon songs and records them and, and puts them on YouTube. Nice. I think they might be on Bandcamp too, if I remember correctly. It's been a while since I've seen them. All right, yeah, yeah, let me know. This isn't going to go on for two days, so if you find it, uh, I can just put it right in the description. Um, yeah. So, Depresso reveals two things. One, he's being pursued by a mafioso named Tony Jaguar, and two, he is suing Pierce and Variety's estate. One of the people chasing Depresso is a client who wants a cash advance on a future settlement. The boat pulls up to a building on an island, and Depresso jumps off to check his car. Edipa and Metzger go to the top of the building with picnic supplies, Depresso tells them that Tony Jaguar supplied Pierce some of the bones for his bone charcoal deal, but had never been paid. Mm, pardon me. Hence the lawsuit. They were supplied from Italy and funneled through a mobbed-up uh, mobbed construction company. Former American GIs killed in a battle there, holed up for weeks, but eventually killed one by one. Jaguar remembered the bodies and recovered them in the 50s and decided Americans would be interested in their countrymen's bones. They ended up being used for charcoal filters. That's that's sad. That's, that's sad. You know, I want to do an episode on, uh, now that I'm doing like broader culture in general, and really just trying to take the piss out of everything. I want to do an episode on World War One, just because it's just so romanticized. And obviously this is fiction, but there's a lot of stories out there where like you think like, that's right, we sent our boys off to fight. And then you hear some of these stories where it's like, oh no, we just dropped a bunch of damn near children into it it comes up a lot in the vonnegut thing where it's like they always portrayed in movies as like 
30 year old guys with you know wives and children at home most of these kids were like 17 didn't know what the fuck they were doing and basically just got dropped off by uncle sam and said like okay you have a good time killing each other and that's it like i feel like that's something i don't know that's that's led to a lot of uh romanticization of the military that i think we could probably do without at this point no i i 100 agree it's uh something near and dear to my heart what you probably don't know about me is i'm actually uh, active duty air force i've been in for about 11 years i take it back our boys in blue go get them guys <laughs> to provide no, no um but like but like you said like it, it, especially in Nottingham and um, in, in Slaughterhouse-Five, you know, that, that wife tears him down in the beginning, mm-hmm. you know, before he actually gets into the story. Like, they were babies, you know. Why is Frank Sinatra playing them in, like, the movie? Like, why is Orson Welles playing them in the movie? They were babies. And literally, that is <laughs> the majority of our, our military forces. And the, the people I work with, my colleagues, a lot of them are, are just kids right out of high school. They don't, you know... Mm-hmm. And they're being trained to work on like these multi-million dollar jets, the, uh, you know, you know, get going out and being handed a gun or a weapon or, you know, a bomb and saying, all right, go blow up these, these you know, brown versions of yourself from another country. So it's, it's a very, uh, yeah, I, I, I feel that quite a bit. Dude, I, I wrote an entire concept album that pretty much the entire premise was if I had been 18 when 9-11 happened, I would have absolutely joined the military. And I I am not built for that kind of shit. Like when my when my family tree mental illness and anxiety kicked on in my mid-20s, like if I'd been in fucking Baghdad or Afghanistan when that happened, I uh, I I I would have been too fragile for it. I would have fucked up my whole life just, you know, getting caught up in the swell of that. But I, mean, I, yeah, I, I, I will say the Air Force I've heard almost uniformly good things though from the people i know who've gone into it <laughs> they can't see you that's right this is a audio podcast there was no winking or nudging that just happened there so <laughs> <laughs> okay we can get back to this uh the paranoids have been eavesdropping and tell them the bone charcoal thing sounds like a recent play they saw they then all smoke a ton of marijuana which metzger turns his head to avoid seeing uh, Depresso sees his pursuers creeping around him and takes off. They realize too late, Depresso takes the boat and has left them stranded on this island for hours until the paranoids use their cigarettes to signal rescue boats. Like, just so much, it feels like a lot of this section actually kind of feels like a dream where like people just kind of pop up and disappear. And like, you know, when, when you're in the middle of a dream and it's like, this doesn't feel like the real world, like it, just how one moment moves to the next, like, and then he ran away and then they held up their cigarettes and then a plane came and then we went to a play, like, like skipping all the in-between. It just, it bleeds, you know, one event into the next. Yeah, it is very dreamlike. All right. So we now get to the play, The Courier's Tragedy, uh, 17th century, written by Richard Warfinger, also completely made up for this book, I believe. So, oh my God, I'm going to try to get through the plot of this play because the book just becomes the plot of this play for a little bit here. Uh, In 17th century, one duke kills another by poisoning the photo of Saint Narcissus, whom the other duke was in the habit of kissing every Sunday at mass. Seems a pretty pretty roundabout way, but it works. This will allow an evil, illegitimate son of the king, Pasquale, to usurp the throne from his half-brother, Niccolo, the good guy of the play. 
Pasquale plots to murder his young brother by playing hide and seek and hiding him in a cannon, then firing it. Uh, quote, out in a bloody rain to feed our fields, amid the mained roar of nature's song and sulfur's cantus firmus. A schemer named Urkel saves Niccolo by stuffing a goat in the cannon instead. Good news for Pasquale, bad news for the goat. Tricking Pasquale into thinking he'd achieved his goal. He smuggles Niccolo out of the castle in disguise. Niccolo, now all grown up, pl plots to kill the Duke and avenge his father. The evil Duke plots to marry his sister, Francesca, to Pasquale, but his sister is actually the boy's mother, and Pasquale, the illegitimate son of the dead Duke, also the Duke, living Duke, Angelo, is banging her too. Um, again, in the background of all this, I'm watching Game of Thrones for the first time and recording it with uh, my fiance. Pretty much the equivalent of this would be uh, Jamie and Cersei, who are incestuous brother and sister, and Jamie is trying to get Cersei to marry Joffrey, who is her son. All sorts of wacky incest shit. Gotta love it. Gotta love incest. <laughs> Gotta love incest. Quote, end quote, Maddie Markwood, Twitter. Go check out the Thomas Pitch. Copyright. <laughs> copyright. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I love throwing people under the bus. It's so much No, I, I love being thrown under the bus. <laughs> There you go. That's a you, you can put that in your waist personal ad. Thrown under buses. Exactly. Discretion hope for. Okay, do a lot. Niccolo's friend, I'm going to alternate between Niccolo and Nicolo because I can't keep track. Friend Dominico is going to rat out his true identity to Pasquale, but the schemer who saved Niccolo, Urkel, intercepts him, traps his head in a cage, cuts off his tongue, stabs him a few times and burns the tongue on a torch. I do like that this play seems to be very dramatic, and then they'll just, like, stop and take 40 minutes for a torture scene. It's, you know, it's very, uh, very on-brand for, like, those Jacobean, Jacobian, I don't know how to say that. I, I promised myself I was going to look that up before, it, so I could pronounce it smartly on this before I th we talk. I, I, think, I think it's Jacobin. Jacobin? Um, you know, plays. Um, I read a lot of Shakespeare in college and in undergrad, and so much of this is just like it reads like a, a Shakespeare play. Obviously, not uh, quite as uh, I don't know refined as a Shakespeare play, but a lot of it does read a lot like you know, like The Tempest and, and things mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, in another act, Angelo tortures a cardinal that refuses to accept a bribe to marry Francesca and her son. Urkel witnessed this while spying and sends a courier to spread the word that the king is trying to marry his mother. Oedipa notes that the whole thing is pretty anti-priest, supposedly an attempt to appeal to the 17th century Puritans back in the time of its writing. She notes this was probably a bad idea as Puritans didn't go to plays, considering them sinful for some reason. Again, love that little detail. Uh... The third act, Pasquale is in the middle of an orgy when all the ladies are revealed to be men and the ape, because what orgy is complete without an ape, is a man in a suit and they torture the ever-loving shit out of them. Don't let this happen to you. Use OkCupid okay via waste. B.O. Box 7431. Act four. Duke Angelo is panicked that Niccolo is possibly alive. Pasquale is dead and the Pope may be sending troops to avenge the dead cardinal. Not knowing Urkel is against him, Angelo summons him to bring him a courier to send a message to an invader named Gennaro to assuage him. Niccolo is now in the presence of the man who killed his father and usurped his throne. 
After Niccolo leaves with a message, Domenico's body is discovered with a message in his show. Show. Shoe. Niccolo is the once thought dead king. Angelo orders troops after him, but not his own men. It's actually treated as an in-joke on stage. The characters all know who the pursuer is, but it's not revealed to the audience. Um, yeah, I like when they explain this. They almost hint that it's not going to be explained, but uh, yeah, it, it's it, I, I like how he explains that and just like, they don't say who it is, but all the actors on stage are acting as if like, this is an in, like, and in reference, everybody on stage knows exactly who he's talking about. But. Yeah, it, it, I'm always conflict, conflicted about this uh, play, you know, just kind of all of a sudden usurping the rest of the uh, plot of The Crying of Lot 49 in the middle of chapter three. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, it seems like its only purpose on the surface is to introduce the idea that the Tristero is a real thing and that. You know, back then people would be would know exactly what it is, but wouldn't want to say it. Kind of like a, a you know, we don't want to say Voldemort's name or whatever from Harry right. Potter, because you always gotta have a Harry Potter reference. <laughs> <laughs> All your critic your criticisms, um, but yeah, I, so I I do like that he he kind of explains that like you know, everyone knows, but no one wants to say because you know. It, it, it definitely gives the reader like a hint of like Driblet, the, the the director, you know, of the play is going to is it, you know you don't know if he's actually trying to send a message out like the Tristero are real, mm -hmm. or if it's just you know an aspect of the play, which he you know he insists it is an aspect of the play, but it's mm -hmm. it's it's always difficult. It's, everything's very ambiguous in Penchon. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, is charged with killing Domenico and is promptly mass-stabbed to death. Gennaro hears... Yeah. Gennaro hears, um... Niccolo is coming and is excited, praying to Saint Narcissus to protect him. Niccolo pauses to rest and read the letter. He realizes only now that Pasquale is dead, and when he finds Gennaro, he'll be returned to his rightful throne. But then he is surrounded by three dark, shadowy figures terrifying him as the lights go out. Uh, Angelo, unable to mount an army, mounts an orgy instead. Because, again, what else? Why not? That's how you go. Exactly. That's how you do it. Yeah. A rider approaches Gennaro and says Niccolo has been found dead and mutilated. He hands him the bloody scroll, but it's not the letter Niccolo read aloud, but rather a full confession from Duke Angelo. Makes mention of an atrocity he caused, and all the bones were turned to ink, which he has used to write all his correspondence since. They pray in a group and reveal the name of the pursuers, Tristero. The name hangs in the air, Tristero. A word that will cling to Oedipa. So this makes a very big impact upon Oedipa. Um, again, this is the trick with this podcast. Sometimes is like when you get into big things like this, I don't want to just like be like, this happened, this happened, this happened, but there's really not else to comment on. There's just some wacky shit happening. A lot uh, of exposition, you know, in this uh, beginning part of the novel where you're just, it's kind of setting up the mystery. Mm -hmm. And then in the latter half of the novel, it's just her trying to piece it together and create a, a narrative in her head of, of what all these disparate clues and, you know, paranoid thoughts she has together into a narrative and you know but 
the, these first three uh, chapters are really a lot of just uh, getting you there. Uh, act five is anticlimactic. I like how it says it's anticlimactic, and then immediately says like, yeah, anticlimactic. Just a complete massacre of Gennaro's forces. In fact, at the play's end, the only non-corpse is Gennaro. Metzger comments the play is like a Roadrunner cartoon played in reverse. Uh, the play director and actor, oh yeah, the, the director of the play and the actor playing Gennaro is Randolph Driblet. Oedipus insists they go backstage to talk with him. This leads to a weird, another dreamlike kind of thing where Metzger just suddenly starts loudly mocking her as a dumb lib. He's like, ah, she's gonna go backstage and fix all the problems of the centuries. It's like, dude, are you all right? I, I don't know. She actually protests that she's a young Republican which <laughs> good for her. Um, she says it has nothing to do with the estate and the bones. She needs to see if there's some connection. Tells Metzger to trust her. He opts to wait in the car. Backstage, Driblet immediately tells her, don't ask for any deep meaning or analysis. The play is dumb entertainment and nothing else. While looking for the script, he flashes her the same look all the actors on stage gave when the word Tristero was spoken. She asks about the reference. Uh, was the reaction of the original text or his directorial decision? He said it was his decision. Also, the original play never showed the trifecta on stage. She asked, what was the significance of Tristero? He gives a non-answer. If I were to fade away, what you saw tonight would vanish too. Says that stamp collectors told him the part about the rival couriers existed, Thurn and Taxus. She realizes she'd gone backstage to ask about Bones, but instead became fascinated with Tristero. She walks out into the parking lot in a daze and drives a Metzger for two miles before noticing the voice on the radio was her husband, Mucho. And that's that's what we got for this episode. Um, setting a lot of stuff up, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, you I know, know, you, I can you learn about it. the Tristero, mm -hmm. the historical Tristero, you know, quote-unquote, and um, the historical rivalry between between turn and taxes and you know the tristero as rival courier services and you you i don't think you necessarily encounter dribblet again i don't want to drop these spoilers for anyone who hasn't read ahead but you know it sets up a scene with dribblet later you know where he he is insisting no the tristero is not real it's all a fabrication of this play um there's no significance to you know, any of my stage directions or the people appearing on stage. It's just stupid entertainment. He says that, but then when you find out something happens with him later, you're like, mm -hmm. was it really, did, was he onto something? Was he trying to convey a message or is she just being paranoid? And that's just, that's, that's the question you're asking yourself throughout the entire book. Is, is this all in, Oedipus head? Is she being paranoid? Is she making it up? Is it just some stupid game that Pearson Verarity set up at, in the event of his death to get mm. back at her for some whatever reason, or just just a fucked up dude? Or it's really happening? Is there really this underground system, <laughs> postal system, where people go postal and kill you, or you know, if you if you try to reveal them, you just don't know, and you're constantly questioning that, and that's that's just a Again, another common thread through Pinchon where you, it's ambiguous. You want to say it's actually happening, you know, what, what, what the characters are paranoid about, but you can't quite put your finger on it. You can't definitively say, 
yeah, this is happening. <laughs> you could say, it appears this is happening. And that's just one of the, the fun things about his writing is that you, the reader, feel that paranoia with the characters in the book because mm -hmm. you just, you have no way of putting your finger on it. Right. He doesn't really give you... So far, I still prefer this much more than David Foster Wallace because though I can appreciate uncertain footing, the footing's actually there. Whereas <laughs> I feel like Infinite Jest, they, they're throwing so much. They're not, they're not letting you get... Uh, I don't know why I said they when it's obviously one part of the horn down the street, but like there's so much going on. It never lets you get your bearings. Whereas this, like, I, I feel what's happening and uh, yeah, I do not live on a major street. There should not be a fucking tractor trailer driving down my block, but here we are. But anyway, we're pretty much wrapped up. That's uh that's the episode. I'm, I'm very excited to continue with this. Where would you say this ranks in the pantheon of Thomas Pinchon? I think I have a, a kind of an unpopular opinion about this book. I, I really, really love it. I think okay. it's among his best, even though it's one of his shortest. Uh -huh. um, and I, I tend to, to rank his books with Gravity's Rainbow at top because Gravity's Rainbow is just kind of untouchable. Um, and then this, Crime Law 49, and then his first three for me are the most solid um, books. They're the ones that hold up the most for me. Now, I love his other books, his later books, um, but there's just something about the the, the tone and the, uh, I don't know, the atmosphere that he creates in these first three books that just feels, there's just a lot of continuity between it that makes me feel, when I read it, like I'm in this specific world, whereas he branches out a lot in his later works. He didn't publish another one after Gravity's Rainbow for 17 years, and that was Vineland, and it was still very very on-brand Pinchon, but it was just like he had kind of branched out, lightened up a little over the years, you know, between <laughs> Gravity's Rainbow and Vineland, and decided, you know, he wanted to explore things beyond the general paranoia of, you know, post-war America and well, mm -hmm. the post-war Western Hemisphere. In any case, um, yeah, it, it's a great book. I, I love it. I know for a fact that the guy who started the Pinchon in Public Day, John... I believe his name is. Mm -hmm. He's on Twitter too. He loves this book. He reads it all the time. It's his favorite Pinchon novel. Nice. Uh, you know what? Slightly off topic, but I think it might be a fun thing to take us out. So you mentioned that, which sure. I think is, is pretty typical. His first work seemed to be his strongest, most beloved. And then he kind of tapers off. I'm curious, who do you have in mind? If I were to say, who was an author who only got better as they went along? Because just think, as soon as you mentioned that, like, yeah, that's very similar to bands where, like, you know, people tend to love the first four albums and then they taper off. Only one I can think of, because I've read so much in the last few years, is uh, Dostoevsky is pretty widely regarded as somebody, like, only got better and added as he went along. And I'm curious if there's any others, now that I think about it, who really kind of kept going in that fashion. You got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I... I the one that comes to mind <clears throat> of recent years is Philip Roth. Now, he, he did kind of taper off towards the end um, with his last couple of novels, but he, he I want to say his first novel was published either in, like, 59 or the very early 60s. 
and he was publishing up until 2010, so a solid like five decades. And his novels in the 90s were just phenomenal. He he, he published his American trilogy in the 90s, which was like uh, what was it? American Pastoral, I Married a Communist, and uh, <laughs> The Human Stain. And you know, you read his books from the 60s through the 70s to the 80s, and you're like, okay, this is pretty good stuff. Um, you know, and there's, you know, some like uh, that Harold Bloom guy <laughs> mm-hmm. who were, were, you know, listing books from his, his 70s output and his 80s output saying, well, this is part of the Western canon. This, these are very important books in the Western canon. But then you get to his 90s stuff, and they just blow everything he had written before out of the water because they just, they're great novels. And, you know, towards the end of his life, you know, in the mid-aughts and uh, 2010, he wrote some other good novels, but, like, they were nothing compared to those 90s novels where he had just been kind of building to that level of skill for some time. And then finally in the 90s, he just hit his stride, and he wrote three of the greatest novels he's ever written. Um, and even in the books that weren't a part of that American trilogy, super great, too, which was, like, uh, Sabbath Theater, Operation Shylock, and a couple others, uh, but he, he was a terrific writer. He and he was like a machine. He wrote like twenty-seven novels, three other books. He, and it was just like he would just constantly churn them out, and they were all quality books. Nice, yeah, I love that. I love I love artists that can have a consistent like a, a consistent quality. But like the the artist that gets better as they go along is such a rare delicacy in the world, and I I, I just love whenever I see it. I think that's why. I made Absolutely. comment during Infinite Jazz, I made comment to Tom Waits a lot, who, you know, was a guy who had like an already unique career. The first 10 years of his career was like this piano balladeer. And then just went like, I'm going to make junkyard music out of nowhere. So already <laughs> like 10 years into his career, critics are like, eh, he's kind of tapering off. Maybe he's not that good. And then he just completely reinvents himself for another 20 years. I just love that. Anyway, uh, Matt, thank you so much for doing this, man. It's no problem. Been, I loved it. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. Uh, so again, we can find you at Maddie, Maddie, yeah, Maddie Markwood, and I can we can find you on Reddit at Thomas Pinchon and Bad Reads. Right? Yep, that's me. Did you ever remember the Good Reads thing you were trying to remember? The the terrible example. Oh God, the Anne Frank thing. Absolute debauchery. That's what he called it. <laughs> Oh, God. Anne Frank, the diary of Anne Frank, a 13-year-old girl in the Holocaust hiding in an attic, absolute debauchery. <laughs> yeah, that's that weird controversy where out of nowhere people were like, you know, she talks about her vagina in that quite a lot, which I feel like if you have, if you give a diary to any 13-year-old, I don't care what's going on in their life, they're going to start talking about what's happening in their underpants at some point. Honestly, any kid. I have a seven-year-old son. And he never stops talking about his ding-dong. So it's, it's just a kid thing, I think. Oh, God. I, I, I heard this on a different podcast, but it be, and I promise this will be the last thing we talk about, uh, where a guy was just talking about he had gone to a family barbecue, and his nephew was there with his uncle. And he's, like, in that age where he's trying to figure everything out. And uh, I don't know where you are, but for whatever reason, in the northeast, in the Philly area, one of the euphemisms for a ding-dong, a penis, is your bird. Like, I grew up with that. Like, yeah, your bird. It's a weird one. I don't know. But apparently, his nephew had come up to him with his dad there at the same barbecue, and he's like, hey, dad, does, 
does Uncle Matt have a bird? He's like, yeah, Uncle, Uncle Matt's a boy. Uncle Matt has a bird. And the kid's reaction was just like, ah, oh, nice. All right, cool. Just like, yeah, fuck yeah. Good job. Just, <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, bro, knuckles, bump it. All right, we can end it on that. Uh, talk about your birds, good reads, Thomas Pajan, bad reads. Matt, and I'm going to end this the way I end every episode. I'm going to stop recording, but you and I can keep talking for a minute. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you.